Hello and welcome to Accent of Women, a show by and about women from diverse cultures and languages right across the world. I'm Giselle Hanna. On today's program, we continue the conversation between activist scholars Sarah Haley and Marilyn Rolston, which takes as a point of departure the firefighting labour of people imprisoned in California's women's prisons. The discussion considers the specific contradictions of that forced labour and meanders to cover the carceral state's relationship to disappearance, precarity, interiority, intimacy, possibility, performance and violence. But this reminds me of other organising work that you've done, and this isn't directly related to fire, but definitely related to questions that, you know, as much as Many of us, they were in carceral studies and do abolitionist work and all of this stuff. It's like the detailed forms of forced precarity are Mm -hmm. like never ending. And so I'm reminded in this conversation of your work around social security inside, which I would love to, you know, um, hear about and how you came to that organizing and that policy work, because this is something that you know, many of us, when we think about, you know, in American studies, when we're thinking about racial capitalism and the wealth and welfare and neoliberalism, we're not thinking about, hmm, social security inside. No, no one is thinking about the person that has been disappeared. Yeah. Beside, exactly. but behind these prison walls and what our lives are going to be like when we come home. Mm-hmm. Now, when I came home after 23 years and I started working again and I set up my social security account and all of that, when I pulled my record up, it just blew my mind that I had only worked, you know, five years. And then I had 23 years of non-work, 23 zeros, (laughs) where I earned nothing. Because none of your work inside prison counts toward um, social security retirement. No, it does, it does not. So when we're incarcerated for long periods of time, we come home, we have no social security built mm-hmm. and no retirement, although we are employees of the state. Right. Working the whole time. Most, most <laughs> yeah. Oh, you must work because the title 15, the California code of regulation says that every able-bodied incarcerated person must work. Mm-hmm. You must work. Mm-hmm. It is not optional. Mm-hmm. So to have no retirement, no social security, no savings, you know, no way of supporting yourself. It just, it, it hit me when I came home and I realized at 50 something years old, when I wrote this brief for a UCLA is, you know, this needs to change. We need to look at, you know, how we're setting people up to spend their golden years when they come home, you know, at the expense of the state and punishment. You know, we we talk about reentry and the needs for reentry and, you know, what it takes for someone to be successful. Well, it 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 should start inside. Right. When we say reentry starts upon entering the system, that's what we should be working on, an exit plan and what that exit plan should look like. And it should include 
Social Security, it should include retirement. And I think there's ways of doing that work because within the prison system, there's such horrendous amounts of markup on goods and services mm -hmm. that go into this general fund called the Inmate Welfare Fund. Mm -hmm. You know, and this fund pays for a lot of state employees' retirement and benefits. It should also be used for incarcerated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> for incarcerated people as well. Yeah. You know, it's our money. It's our family's money. We're paying, you know, these ridiculous amounts of money for a bar of soap and a tube of toothpaste. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And at the end of that, you know, to be able to recover some of that. Right. Would, would be, I think, trans transformative to, to the system. Right. Or another way of, of putting it is that after working for 20 something years, <laughs> you don't deserve you. You deserve the Social Security number um, number. One deserves the Social Security benefits. Also, one deserves not to be rendered, you know, vulnerable to premature death without the resources of, of life in elder years. I mean, this is permanent. Um, incarceration. This is not trivial. This is not benign. This is not one benefit. This is a lifeline. People live on this. And yeah. that kind of dispossession, that kind of precarity um, by virtue of having worked inside prison, right? It's about like where you worked, <laughs> being excluded because of where you work, because of working under captivity. Um, and 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 that being an extension of of a violent future forever, right? That's you know, social security is into perpetuity. So it's just it's deep and and um, you know, I don't know, intense to think about. Yeah, and you know, we look at the houseless population. Mm -hmm. You know, there are more people on the streets now who are either over the age of 55 mm -hmm. or under the age of 25. Mm -hmm. Those are the two largest populations of folks who are unhoused. Right. When people exit prison, there's gate money, $200. Mm -hmm. Everyone gets the same amount of gate money or no money. Mm -hmm. You know, so for some type of retirement fund to be set up so that folks don't end up homeless, houseless, you know, or set up to the point where they have no other choice but to return to the conditions of prison just so that they can have a place to sleep and a meal to eat. Right. You know, so it's all of that, too, um, that I think we need to be looking at when we talk about abolition and, and criminal justice reforms. Right. Well, can you say a little bit more about what you did as part of like efforts to um, make people eligible? I, I remember this just from knowing you, but what, what was the kind of campaign for Social Security inside? There was no campaign for Social Security inside. Okay. No, I wrote this once I was released just a few years ago. Okay. And we actually had an opportunity to speak to a number of public defenders, 
in LA County and uh, other lawyers that were interested in how we could think through actually actualizing, uh -huh. you know, this kind of policy. Mm -hmm. And as I think about it more now that you brought it back up, you know, there's, I, I think it's time for to for us to really do something about it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And we have to, and we have to. Um, yeah, now you've got me thinking about <laughs> who I should be, who I should be calling and, and saying, you no, know, we I, need I to wasn't trying to impose work on you, but I, you know, I just, I thought about this because you, you have done such a range of organizing and it only, I was only reminded of this, like reminded of your writing and our conversations about this when we were talking about fire and when we, when you were talking about the disappeared, right? And so it's about the disappeared people and the disappeared issues that are so numerous by virtue of spending years and years under captivity, the kind of compounded loss, the kind of compounded um, toll, it, you know, in ways that elude us, even when we feel like we're paying very close attention, even I think when people talk about the experience of prison, you know, um, it's often not well, I lost my future access to years and years of benefits um, because that's seen as so far afield of what people should be entitled to. Precarity is construed as, you know, permanent precarity is construed as part of the sentence, right? Um, yeah, so, I mean, that kind of brings us to this question of fire and organizing and CCWP um which um you know the california coalition for women prisoners which you have led for all of these years um you know does such incredible work to both offset or alleviate or try and ameliorate precarity every day vulnerabilities and also to um, dismantle imprisonment. And, you know, I've always been struck by how CCWP is able to do both at once. And obviously, that is because it is led by women inside, people inside California prisons, um, all people who are imprisoned um, in California women's prisons. So, um, yeah, I was just wondering, you know, it strikes me that the origins of CCWP really help us think about, um, you know, kind of fire as black feminist fuel, fire under duress, you know, um, the origins of CCWP as a fight around healthcare for people inside California prisons um, who were in dire straits, right? Facing dire conditions of medical neglect, um and organizing and starting this newsletter and so i was just wondering your thoughts about kind of you know why fire why the fire inside um what you make of that as a kind of organizing framework or argument or motif as you said <sighs> well I wish I would have thought of it, but I didn't. <laughs> I know. I'm just thinking about your reflections now, you know, like, um, 
because you ran with it, the fire outside, you know, um, with the new work that you're starting. I think it's powerful um, in kind of thinking about the, this relationship between um, like, well, what you alluded to before, which is beauty and wreckage. You know, you talked about mm -hmm. the need of community and relation inside. Um, and, you know, the fire inside re reflects a kind of interiority, a desire. Right. Um, as well as, you know, the anger that defines the experience of imprisonment and the hope that, you know, prisons will burn one day um, and be rendered obsolete. So, you know, I don't know if you have kind of reflections on that moment of CCWP's beginning and what we might learn about um this relationship between like strength and vulnerability or precariousness and organizing, you know? Yeah, well, you know, CCWP's work, as you said, started inside with a fight for better health care, but then it grew into all of these other, you know, uh, amazing opportunities to be supportive of women inside. So through writing warriors, there's a continuation of building relationships uh, with incarcerated women, with volunteers who write letters, because many of us inside have burned bridges, you know, and we're trying to reignite relationships. Yeah. And so it's so important to to have that process of writing, you know, reintroduced into your life to have connection with someone on the outside of the prison if you can. And so writing warriors is so important and it provides a lifeline, you know, to a lot of our members inside. And then there's, you know, our legal visiting team, you know, folks who are fighting for their lives through um the board of prison hearings, you know, having to appear before the parole board, having to, you know, show themselves vulnerable over and over and over again and relive, you know, traumatic experiences over and over again to have support around preparing for that trauma and re-traumatization, but also helping us to present ourselves because we're always you know, presenting ourselves when you're incarcerated. You know, there's, there's a, there's, <laughs> you know, yeah. you know, that, that's, that's constant. Can I um, imagine the pressure <laughs> of that kind of presentation over and over, not just every, you know, every day, like with the kind of authority inside, but then, you know, and parole and then, um, when you are presenting oneself, you know, for a job, having had a record and then clemency, it's like a constant performance. It's a show. Yeah. Performance, performance. Where the performance. stakes are so high. Yeah. And it, it's exhausting. It's exhausting. Um, and that's a whole nother show. <laughs> uh, but, um, yeah, and you know, through through again commutation and pardon process, 
So we have all of these different ways of supporting folks inside and outside mm -hmm. through the organization. So that when we come home, you know, we don't have to perform. We can live. Mm -hmm. We can be ourselves, our authentic selves. We can actually become ourselves mm -hmm. instead of constantly reinventing ourselves through, mm. you know, the performance of survival mm -hmm. inside of a cage. Mm -hmm. um, CCWP has been that for me and for so many women. And now that we've expanded across the state to have two chapters, one in LA and in the Bay Area, right? where we can now, you know, not only support folks inside, but when folks come home, there's ways that folks can be employed, mm -hmm. can still do movement work, and then still give back mm -hmm. to the folks that they left in the communities and behind the walls. So it's it's been really a saving grace for me. Mm -hmm. So many of my friends have come home, but still so many of them are still there. And so to be out here fighting the good fight, fighting all of those fires, right? Which I think is indicative of all of those uh, those policies that were created in the '90s and early 2000s on right. you know all of that tough on crime crap. Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. We've got to put out all of those fires, right? You know, so that we can, you know, create something more, more beautiful for our folks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it strikes me that you know the fire extinguishment is part of that creation. That in the doing, in the making of, you know, abolitionist organizing, um, which is putting out fires, as you say, it's part of that, also that building work. And that's hard to balance. You know, I think it's hard when you talk about those repeated performances, I feel like the fire of rage inside me. Like I just will not, um, I will not convey <laughs> like my desire toward, you know, of what might happen to the members of a parole board or all those judges, right? Got all of those people who are part of the state who are passing judgment constantly. And again, part of the disappearance of what we think of as the violence of incarceration. It's not just the physical brutality that happens. It is that emotional taxation, um, that exhaustion, which of course has a psychic and bodily toll. Um, you know, but it, it is always something that in particular feminist, Black feminist, women of color feminist organizing has been able to balance so gracefully is the relationship between that kind of fire and rage and the affection and intimacy of organizing. I recall, you know, um, being at panels with you and Elisa Bieria and other folks talking about the intimacy of organizing. Um, and so I'm trying to lean into that, but quite honestly, Romerilyn, you know, this happens a lot when we talk. It's just hard to get past the rage in particular of the experience of the repetition of that performance. And, and it's such a range of performances, right? So you're training 
you know, I say you, but I mean, one is training someone to fight fire. So that's a performance of strength. And then you have to go to a performance of vulnerability. And then it's a performance of stoicism. And it's like trying to capture that perfect subject, right? You're trying to be a perfect subject before the law. And people think of that in terms of a trial, right? But, you know, what you always teach us is that that is part of the sentence. That is a years long cultivated performance that you are required to do for any hopes of getting out, right, in a timely manner, particularly if you're sentenced to long term. Um, yeah. Your freedom is contingent upon you performing well. And if you do not perform well, then most times you will not get out. You will die in prison. It will kill you. But so, you also um, not get out performing well every day, right? Like it's it's a gamble or... Um, it is a gamble. I'm just struck by, you know, performing well, not for the guarantee of getting out, but for the hope of getting out, right? Exactly. And, and also, as a, I think there's, there's something really radical about being able to play all of these roles too, mm. for your own benefit. Mm. You know, because we're not meant to survive the system. Mm -hmm. And so in order to survive it, not just survive it, maybe even thrive within it. Mm -hmm. for me to be able to do the organizing work that I was able to do inside, for me to build organizations, create programs, train women, I had to perform in a <laughs> whole lot of ways so that I could have access to resources mm -hmm. so that I could then give them to other women. And so, you know, it's... <laughs> It's yeah. some of that too. Well, can I ask you like a theoretical question? Yes. Uh, it is, I mean, it's, it's I, I understand um, the magnitude of that resource building and of that organizing and of that relation and world building inside. And I'm wondering still, despite the magnitude of that being so beautiful and clear, whether um, or how you think about that as thriving versus surviving inside. In other words, I'm just struck by the language of being able to thrive inside mm -hmm. prison. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I know yeah. particular ideas about that and people have very different ways of describing um, what life what life is, how they would characterize that. Yeah. And, and what I mean by thriving is if I wanted something, I could get it. Mm, okay. Uh -huh. I could go to administration, the warden, associate wardens, captains, lieutenants, sponsors, and say, we need X, Y, and Z. Right. Okay. And we could get it. Mm -hmm. You know, we were able to build the African-American Women Prisons Association. We had a book club. Mm -hmm. We had um, we we had um, dances. We had Juneteenth celebrations, Black Kwanzaa. We brought in 
So that's what I mean by thriving. There wasn't any resistance. There wasn't any punishment. There wasn't anything withheld. So we were able to then create all of the things that we wanted to create for ourselves and for others. Because at that time, we had no parole policies in California. That was a conversation between activist scholars Sarah Haley and Marilyn Rolston about forced labour in the Californian carceral state, specifically in relation to women prisoners' labour and fighting the Californian fires. Tune in next week for the conclusion of this conversation. But that's all we've got time for on today's Accent of Women. This show is produced in the Melbourne studios of Community Radio 3CR with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The show is distributed nationally via the Community Radio Network with special thanks to the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia. Music for Accent of Women was written and produced by George Congeri. If you want to hear this show again or any of our previous programs, you can download the podcast from 3CR's website. That's 3cr.org.au. Go to the Accent of Women page and follow the links to this week's show. If you want to get in touch with the producers of the show, you can write to us at accentofwomen at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook. Thanks for tuning in to the program. I'm Giselle Hanna and I look forward to your company again next week.